Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Bad Gaze, a podcast where we uncover the dark side of gay men in history. I'm Hugh Lemmy, a writer and novelist. And I'm Ben Miller, a writer, gay historian and member of the board of the Gay Museum in Berlin. And each episode we'll be profiling a different gay villain from history, looking at their life in context and how their sexuality informed their infamy. We want to complicate gay history by talking about evil people and complicated people. We're focusing on men because cis men are definitionally the most bad, and we're asking why we don't remember our villains as well as we sometimes remember our heroes. Last week we talked about a gangster who piled around with celebrities and helped us think about class and sexuality in post-war Britain. Who are we talking about this week, Ben? Well, this week we're keeping up the theme of criminals and talking about Leopold and Loeb, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb, also known as uh, Babe Leopold and Dickie Loeb. Um, they killed Bobby Franks, who was 14 years old when they were 18 and 19, respectively, in 1923. And this spectacular killing set off a media frenzy that was about class, about sexuality, about fears of secularization, um, questions about the American dream and the meaning of the good life. So Nathan Leopold was born in 1904 in Chicago. Uh, and was born into a wealthy German-Jewish immigrant family. Uh, Nathan was a child prodigy. He spoke his first words at the age of four months and scored 210 on an IQ test, um, although IQ tests have changed over time and also IQ tests are now known to not be particularly scientific. And even though he was only um, 19 at the time of the murder, he'd already completed his undergraduate degree at the University of Chicago. Um, with Phi Beta Kappa honors, and he had been accepted to Harvard Law School. He was going to begin uh, the following fall, um, and he was going to travel to Europe before starting at Harvard Law School. He had studied 15 languages, he spoke five fluently, and he had already established a reputation as an ornithologist by identifying, along with several other ornithologists, uh, an endangered songbird species called Kirtland's warbler. Um, Richard Loeb, was born in June 1905 to another wealthy uh, Jewish immigrant family. In this case, his father had married a Catholic woman. Um, his father, Alfred Henry Loeb, had been uh, the vice president of Sears Roebuck and possessed a fortune of $10 million in 1923 dollars. Um, so these are both very rich, very privileged uh, young men. Loeb was also um, exceptionally intelligent from a young age. He was raised mostly by nannies and governesses and was pushed very hard by them intellectually. And this ends up coming up again later in his trial. Um, and he became the youngest graduate at that time in the history of the University of Michigan at the age of 17, a year before the crime was committed. So these two young men, uh, when they murder Bobby Franks, are both the age that most people would be when they're going from high school to college, and yet they are already, uh, they've already completed um, a college education. Um, and Loeb, even though he was um, obviously very intelligent, um, was also known to be lazy, unmotivated, and obsessed with crime. He spent a huge amount of time reading detective novels, pulp periodicals, and newspaper crime reports. And we have to remember that this period of time when they're growing up is a period when the mass media as an institution is also really growing. Um, radio is spreading very fast. Uh, this is the era of uh, yellow journalism, of enormously profitable and competing twice-daily newspapers in most cities. Um, and so 
this kind of pulpy media environment in which they're shaped also ends up being the media environment in which they achieve their fame or their infamy. So in the fall of 1923, um, they had been friends when they were growing up, but Loeb returns from the University of Michigan back to Chicago, and they resume their friendship and um, develop into probably something more than friends. And Leopold seems to have fallen pretty hard for Loeb, who was um, much more conventionally handsome, mm-hmm. uh, tall, brown hair, slender. Uh, so yes, I think we do have an official evil twink alert once again here on Bad Gaze. Um, and they were kind of uh, hanging out aimlessly in uh, these enormous mansions in this very sort of well-to-do neighborhood of Chicago. And Loeb would uh, engage in bouts of purposeless vandalism. He would set cars on fire, he would set stores on fire, and Leopold would kind of follow him around and egg him on and uh, encourage him on these adventures. And Leopold had become fascinated by the philosophy of Friedrich Nietzsche, specifically Nietzsche's concept of the Superman or the Ubermensch. And to radically oversimplify Nietzsche briefly, who's, uh, I think, one of the most complex and troubling um, and compelling philosophical figures in the history of human thought. Um, Nietzsche's concept of the Superman uh, is that there are certain individuals who are uh, more evolved than most people, who are transcendent, who have some kind of extraordinary or unusual capability. They have superior intellects, and that superiority allows them to rise above laws and rules that... um, are designed for the unwashed masses um, of the unimportant and of the average. It sounds very much like uh, Brett Easton Ellis meets F. Scott Fitzgerald. It is very Brett Easton Ellis meets F. Scott Fitzgerald, and it just gets worse. So Leopold believed that he was one of these uh, sort of superior individuals and that Loeb was as well, um, and he'll end up convincing Loeb um, that he is one. And so they kind of begin to conceive of their um, intellectual gifts and their obvious kind of brilliance combined with their wealth, combined with their experience of homosexuality as setting them apart. And I think it's interesting here now again to think about um, this kind of masculinist, anarchist um form of homosexual identification that we've talked about before. It came up uh, when talking about Adolf Brand uh, in the Hatzuvait episode. It came up when talking about Rehm. Um, but I think there's something to this idea that the combination of enormous privilege within a society and uh, the experience of homosexuality when the mass of society um, disapproves of homosexuality that leads people to believe that they're part of this kind of community of the special. Um, Obviously, not all of them become Nazis and not all of them go on to kill, but I think it's interesting to think about the relationships between some of these things. And so um, these acts of vandalism continue to kind of build, and they start progressing to more and more serious crimes, and they're hoping to get media coverage. Um, And so... Finally, they decide that they have to design the perfect crime to confirm to themselves that they are, in fact, these Nietzschean supermen. 
Leopold would le later say to his attorney that the killing of Bobby Franks was, quote, an experiment. It's just as easy to justify such a death as it is to justify an entomologist killing a beetle on a pin. Wow. And so for details of their relationship with one another, I think it's interesting to read some pretty lengthy excerpts from letters written from Nathan to Richard, and this is again in the fall of 1923, so a few months before the crime is committed. Um, and these letters, I think, are very frank sexually and also reveal the kind of fucked up dynamics between the two of them where Leopold is kind of in the thrall of this handsome guy and just wants to kind of egg him on to prove his own superiority. Like, Leopold conceives of himself as being slightly inferior to Loeb, mm -hmm. and then the two of them are superior to everyone else. So, Leopold writes to Loeb on October 9th, 1923, Dear Dick, in view of our former relations, I take it for granted that it is unnecessary to make any excuse for writing to you at this time, and so I'm going to state my reasons for doing so, as this may turn out to be a long letter. They seem to have had some sort of a falling out uh, just before this letter was written. Um, I'm going to put in writing what my attitude is towards our present relations with a view of avoiding future misunderstandings. Continuing, continuing. Um, now comes a practical question. I think that I would ordinarily be expected to, and in fact do expect to, continue my attitude towards you as before, until I learn either by direct words or by conduct on your part which way your decision has been formed. This I shall do. Now a word of advice. I do not wish to influence your decision either way, but I do want to warn you that in case you deem it advisable to discontinue our friendship, that in both interests extreme care must be had. The motif of, quote, a falling out of a pair of cocksuckers would sure to be popular, which is patently undesirable and forms an irksome but unavoidable bond between us. Therefore it is, though in my humble opinion expedient, though our breach need be no less real in fact, yet to observe the conventionalities, such as a salutation on the street and a general appearance of at least not unfriendly relation on all occasions when we may be thrown together in public. Um, so basically he's saying, you know, if you do break up with me, uh, make sure to be careful so that people don't realize that we've been having this sexual relationship. And then the next day, uh, he writes another letter, um, in which he speaks a little bit more about Nietzsche in ways that I think are, are interesting. So, uh, now that is all, now that all that is in point to our controversy, I'm going to ask a little more in an effort to explain my system of Nietzschean philosophy with regard to you. Going on, uh, in formulating a superman, he is, on account of certain superior qualities inherent in him, exempted from the ordinary laws which govern ordinary men. He is not liable for anything he may do, whereas others would be, except for the crime that it is possible for him to commit, to make a mistake. And it's interesting, they do go on to make one very important mistake that is the reason why they actually do get caught um, after the killing of Bobby. Um... So, in the spring of 1924, um, these two very unpleasant young men decided that their perfect crime would be the kidnapping and murder of an adolescent. And they spent uh, a few months planning everything. They planned how they would abduct the person they were going to kidnap. They planned how they would get rid of the body. And they decided that they would make a ransom demand um, in order to hide their motive. Um, these are both very, very wealthy young men. They certainly didn't need any money from anyone else. And so they create this ransom demand, which is a long, incredibly complicated series of delivery instructions, and they type this ransom note up using 
a typewriter that they had stolen uh, on one of their kind of earlier crime sprees. And this typewriter will end up becoming very important later on. Um, they decided that they would commit the murder using a chisel and bludgeon the person to death. Wow. So they begin to look around the Kenwood area of Chicago, which is this very wealthy area of Chicago, for a suitable victim. And they decide to kidnap Bobby Franks. And uh, Bobby Franks was the 14-year-old son of Jacob Franks, who's another wealthy Jewish German immigrant um, and a watch manufacturer in Chicago. And uh, Bobby Franks was actually uh, Richard Loeb's second cousin, uh, lived across the street from Loeb, and uh, was sort of friends with the Loeb family. Mm -hmm. And so in May 1924... They rented a car under the name Morton D. Ballard, and they offered Bobby Franks a ride home from school. And uh, initially, Franks said no, because it was only a couple blocks away, but they uh, persuaded him into a car. Now, it's actually unclear who was in the front seat and who was in the back seat, um, but it seems like uh, Leopold was in the front seat driving and Loeb was in the back seat with the chisel, Franks then sat in the front seat next to Leopold, and Loeb um, killed him, bludgeoned him on the head with the chisel from behind, and then dragged him into the back seat and gagged him and like shoved him down into the floorboards of the car. And so they then drove 25 miles south of Chicago to um, Wolf Lake in Hammond, Indiana, and they removed the clothes from the body... Um, and they threw the body into a drainage ditch along the Pennsylvania Railroad tracks, and they actually poured hydrochloric acid on the face on a distinctive marking on uh, Bobby Franks's stomach and on his genitals because they wanted to conceal um, who they had murdered. Wow. So on the way back to Chicago, they tip the ransom note into the mail. And I'm going to read the ransom note now. Dear sir, proceed immediately to the back platform of the train. Watch the east side of the track. Have your package ready. Look for the first large red brick factory situated immediately adjoining the tracks on the east. On top of the factory is a large black water tower with the word champion written on it. Wait until you have completely passed the south end of the factory, about five very rapidly, and then immediately throw the package as far east as you can. Remember that this is the only chance to, to recover your son. Um, and this note was accompanied by a phone call from Leopold to Franks' mother. He identified himself as George Johnson, which is also the name with which the ransom note is signed. And um, they then burned their clothing... They cleaned up the bloodstains from the upholstery of the car. They returned to the car, and they spent the rest of the night playing cards. Um, so news came in pretty rapidly that the body of the boy had been found, and despite their efforts to obscure his identity with acid, uh, people still figured out that it was Bobby Franks. And so they then... Um, hid their typewriter and uh, 
even though they abandoned plans to collect on the ransom money, which they had been planning on doing even though they didn't need the money because getting the money was part of the perfect crime, mm -hmm. part of you know, committing the perfect crime. Um, they thought that they had covered their tracks, they'd done everything perfectly, and they just continued to go on about their lives. And during the police investigation, uh, they actually both would speak freely to police and reporters. And the reason that they were talking to police and reporters is because they were living in this neighborhood where Franks had been living, and they were part of a social class that was presumed um, not to have been involved in something like this. Um, Loeb told one detective, if I was going to murder anybody, it would be a cocky son of a bitch, just like Bobby Franks. Loeb actually... Um, followed really avidly um, news of the investigation and at one point uh, called up a reporter, told the reporter that he had read a lot of detective stories and knew how a murder like this would be committed. He then goes with the reporter down to a sort of seedy area on 63rd Street um, and is, you know, kind of pointing out all of these places where he thinks that, uh, or where he sort of claiming that, uh, you know, the kind of person who would do this crime would be hanging out. And the places that he's pointing out are the places actually where the phone call um, to Franks' family from quote-unquote George Johnson was made. So he's actually showing them part of where they did it. Um, and uh, So he's not that smart. He's not that smart, but again, this is not actually why they get caught. Uh -huh. um, and the reason that they got caught was because... Um, the police found a pair of eyeglasses on the crime scene. And the eyeglasses had a somewhat unusual uh, frame, and only three people in Chicago had bought that pair of glasses. And one of the people who bought them was Nathan Leopold. Um, he left his glasses at the crime scene? He lost his glasses at the crime scene, yeah. Ugh. I know. A real Superman, right? Yeah. So, um, the typewriter, which the men had tried to destroy, was also recovered, and uh, the typewriter wrote certain letters um, in a defective and recognizable way, and so then it was pretty easy to tell uh, that this was their typewriter and that, that they had written the ransom note. Yeah, sure. So the two men are brought in for formal questioning on May 29th, and their alibi was that they had uh, picked up two women and then dropped them off without ever learning what their last names were. Um, the alibi was broken because Leopold's chauffeur had been repairing Leopold's car that night uh, while the men claimed that they were using it. So Loeb cracks first, and Loeb says that Leopold planned everything and killed Bobby Franks while he drove, and then Leopold cracks and says that Loeb killed Bobby Franks while he, Leopold, drove. And again, the preponderance of the evidence seems to suggest that Loeb drove and Leopold was the actual killer. What's the, what's the basis of that? Testimony from some eyewitnesses and um, just the sense of uh, how it was described in the trial transcripts. Okay, sure. So um, a couple years back, uh, Nina Barrett published a book called The Leopold and Loeb Files, which on its publication was written up in the Paris Review by Jeremy Leibarger. And what's interesting about this book and Leibarger's article, and people can look this up, and actually now a lot of the trial documents are online, um, 
is that you can actually hear Leopold and Loeb's voices uh, as they talk about the crime. Mm -hmm. And so here's Loeb talking about uh, the first time he felt remorse about the crime. Quote, I felt sorry about the thing, about the killing of the boy. Oh, well, that very night. But then the excitement, the accounts in the paper, the fact that we'd gotten away with it and that they did not suspect us, that it was given so much publicity and all that sort of thing, naturally went into the question of not feeling as much remorse as I otherwise think I would have. Leopold is asked if he would take $10,000 from the policeman, um, and Leopold says, it depends on whether I thought I could get away with it. And so, very quickly, this turns into an enormous media scandal. Um, there's this mystery, right, in the case, that there's these young boys from wealthy families who kill for no reason. They didn't need money. It wasn't a crime of passion. It wasn't a crime of revenge. It's this, like, incredibly well-planned killing, and no one can explain why. And the way that media accounts at the time kind of contextualize this is by talking about the quote-unquote jazz life and the idea that um, this is connected to changes in society um, that are occurring in the 1920s. So the 1920s in the United States are a time of enormous change in sexual and social mores, especially for urban people and especially for upper-class people. Um, this is the moment when dating kind of begins to be a thing that people do, Young people are developing kind of power as an independent consumer class. They have money. Uh, you know, women are bobbing their hair, smoking cigarettes. There's gin. There's short skirts. Um, there's cars all of a sudden if you're rich. And people are taking advantage of these freedoms. And there's a sort of fear that traditional family ideas and hard work and all this are being replaced by jazz and self-indulgence, et cetera, et cetera. It's the Roaring Twenties, right? It's the Roaring Twenties, absolutely. And as a reaction against the uh, loss of a generation in the First World War, partly. Absolutely, yeah. And um, a lot is made of the fact that Leopold and Loeb are raised secular and are raised without any feelings of religious responsibility that's kind of the line of the Jewish community. Um, the evangelical preacher Billy Sunday um, gave a speech in Chicago uh, after the killing, saying that the killing could be, quote, traced to the moral miasma which contaminates some of our young intellectuals. It is now considered fashionable for higher education to scoff at God. Precocious brains, salacious books, infidel minds, all these help to produce this murder. And... Um, this also, as we'll talk a little bit more about later, becomes one of the first American court cases where the new science of psychiatry, along with a whole lot of related things that are considered science at the time and that now we wouldn't, like phrenology, um, become part of the popular conversation and also part of the evidence presented. For example, um, a newspaper phrenologist analyzes a picture of Leopold and I identifies him as having a lack of reason, moral, and benevolent power, aggressiveness, sensuous lips, dynamic personality, sex but weaker than Loeb, and a destructive instinct. You'll be happy to know, Hugh, that the destructive instinct is located just above one's left ear. So, um, at this point, when people are talking about criminals, and especially about uh, violent young criminals, they tend to be thinking about people who are subnormal in intelligence. 
this is the age of jazz and this is the age of this new kind of sexual freedom, but this is also the age of eugenics um, and the age of thinking about crime as being the result of um, breeding among people of a kind of lower intellectual order. Mm -hmm. um, some people like Charles Murray and Andrew Sullivan uh, apparently still believe this to be the case, um, as we've talked about in earlier episodes. But... Um, this case is really challenging to that kind of public conversation or to that idea because, um, you know, here are two people who are seemingly these bright young men and yet they've done this really terrible thing. So the trial begins and a lot of what I'm talking about with the trial um, and what I've talk been talking about already comes from a book from Simon Batts called For the Thrill of It, Leopold Loeb and the Murder that Shocked Chicago. And there's an excerpt of that book that was also published in Smithsonian Magazine and is available for people to read online. So Robert Crow is the prosecutor, and he wants to use the successful prosecution of this case to make a jump up to the mayor's office. And so he starts boasting to the press that this is going to be the most complete case ever presented to a jury, and that he's going to hang these guys until they're dead. Um, and he has every reason to be pretty cocky at this point, because there's a confession, and the confession led the police to physical evidence. There's the typewriter um, and the glasses. And Crow realizes that uh, this is going to be a sensational trial because you have these two young men who are um, in this kind of, you know, quote-unquote unnatural relationship with one another and who continue, even after the arrest, to speak to reporters about what they've done in a very unrepentant way. So Leopold tells a reporter, for example, quote, a thirst for knowledge is highly commendable no matter what extreme pain or injury it may inflict upon others. A six-year-old boy is justified in pulling the wings from a fly if by so doing he learns that without wings the fly is helpless. And so the kind of wealth of the defendants and the fact that they're so unashamed uh, makes this an incredibly um, big media story. Mm -hmm. And the families, um, trying to find the best defense that money can buy, hire Clarence Darrow, who is a very well-known lawyer of the 20th century. People will know him from famous defenses of the American socialist Eugene Debs and from his role in the Scopes Monkey Trial, um, where he defended the teaching of evolution in Tennessee. And Darrow takes this case on, even though it's pretty obvious to everyone that the boys are guilty, because he wants to use the opportunity of this trial to make a case against the death penalty. And so what he does is he immediately pleads them guilty. In other words, there's not actually a trial to determine whether they did it or not. Mm -hmm. Everything is about the sentencing. And then he plays out this trial over sentencing using their age, arguments about their mental state, and the fact that they had already pled guilty, um, in addition to arguments against the barbarity of the death penalty in order to try to get them off. And there's kind of a big range of options for the judge here in terms of sentencing. The judge could have sentenced them to as little as 14 years in prison, or the judge could have sentenced them to the death penalty. Mm -hmm. And now with this argument about their mental condition, this case, as I mentioned earlier, becomes the introduction of psychiatric evidence as a kind of crucial factor in these kinds of court trials. So um, William A. White, who is the president of the American Psychiatric Association, and Bernard Gluck, who's a professor of psychiatry in New York, um, testify to their various traumas at the hands of nannies and the kind of um, trouble that this had gotten them into um, in their development. Um, he testified that Loeb had paranoid delusions and had been strictly punished by a nanny and that 
Leopold had been sexually abused by one of his nannies, um, and that this had led to a situation where uh, Loeb needed an audience for his mastermind pursuits, and Leopold needed to feel that he was a slave to some superior creature who was himself superior, etc. And then four psychiatrists are brought in by the prosecution to say that Leopold and Loeb have no signs of mental derangement. And Batts points out something really interesting here, which apparently wasn't noticed at the time, but that this division between the sort of warring psychiatrist uh, comes from a difference in how they understand the science. So the psychiatrists who testify that they have no sign of mental derangement are thinking uh, about physical defects or deformations, and the ones who testify that they have been abused or that they have these fantasies are relying on this much newer technique of analysis and talk therapy. Mm-hmm. And this contradiction between the psychiatrists, who at this time are amusingly sometimes referred to as alienists, adds to the media frenzy. And there's a lot of arguments that, well, you know, if you can get experts on both sides to um, testify completely opposite things, what the hell good are experts? And there's a lot of allegations that uh, the profession of psychiatry is unsavory and that these people will sort of say anything for money. Yeah. So Darrow ends up concluding the trial with a 12-hour-long closing statement delivered over several days. And it's a remarkable piece of oratory. People can find it online. And I'm going to read some uh, sections of it here because I think it shows how Darrow attempted to frame this case to the benefit of Leopold and Loeb. And what's interesting also, as you'll hear later is that he brings up, in a pretty direct way, their homosexual relationship with one another as evidence for their derangement and therefore the fact that they shouldn't be killed and they should instead be pitied, which kind of hooks into this invert uh, idea, which then, you know, it's this kind of liberal tolerance that then uh, ends up creating the regimes of assimilation and accommodation under which we still live. So Darrow says, I do not need to ask mercy from this court for these clients, nor for anybody else, nor for myself, though I have never yet found a person who did not need it. But I do not ask for mercy for these boys. Your honor may be as strict in the enforcement of the law as you please, and you cannot hang these boys. You can only hang them because back of the law and back of justice and back of the common instincts of man and back of the human feeling for the young is the hoarse voice of the mob which says kill. He goes on, There was neither cruelty to the deceased beyond taking his life, nor was there any depth of guilt and depravity on the part of the defendants, for it was a truly motiveless act, without the slightest feeling of hate or revenge, done by a couple of children for no reason. Why did they kill little Bobby Franks? Not for money, not for spite, not for hate. They killed him as they might kill a spider or a fly, for the experience. They killed him because they were made that way because somewhere in the infinite processes that go to the making up of the boy or the man something slipped, and these unfortunate lads sit here hated, despised outcasts with the community shouting for their blood. Mr. Savage, with the immaturity of youth and experience, that's one of the prosecutors, says that if we hang them there will be no more killing. This world has been one long slaughterhouse from the beginning until today, and killing goes on and on and on and will forever. Why not read something? Why not study something? Why not think instead of blindly shouting for death? So, you know, this is the beginning, in some ways, uh, at least in the public media conversation, of Born This Way. Um, He writes about the death penalty as being kind of a relic of, quote, the primitive savage of barbarous lands. Um, Repeats these arguments that um, Leopold and Loeb were pushed too hard intellectually, uh, that they've become over-intellectualized. 
he talks a lot about Nietzsche. For example, quote, At 17, at 18, at 16, while healthy boys were playing baseball or working on the farm or doing odd jobs, Babe, Nathan Leopold, was reading Nietzsche, a boy who should never have seen it at that early age. <laughs> and he's kind of defining Nietzsche for the Chicago judge and talking about how Nietzsche is important, but then says... Um, here is a boy at 16 or 17 being, becoming obsessed with these doctrines. There isn't any question about the facts. Their own witnesses tell it, and every one of our witnesses tell it. It was not a casual bit of philosophy with him. It was his life. Many of us read this philosophy but know that it has no actual application to life, but not he. It became a part of his being. It was his philosophy. He lived it and practiced it. He thought it applied to him. Uh, he refers to the killing as the mad act of mad boys. And then, in getting into their relationship, he says, quote, they had a weird, almost impossible relationship. Leopold, with his obsession of the Superman, had repeatedly said that Loeb was his idea of the Superman. He had the attitude towards him that one has to his most devoted friend, or that a man has to a lover. And then he reads to the court, as part of the closing statement in its entirety, the um, falling out of uh, favor among cocksuckers letter that I read earlier mm. that kind of shows exactly the character of the relationship between the two of them. Wow. And it's real, like a, a moral panic equivalent to, I mean, all sorts of trials that have come afterwards, whether it's um, uh, marijuana or jazz or um, uh, rap music or video games. Absolutely. And basically... But it's what, just Nietzsche. <laughs> right. And it's just a moral panic over Nietzsche and homosexuality. Yeah. Um, and Darrow is trying to calm the moral panic basically by saying they couldn't help it. Yeah. By saying it was kind of baked into their character. Um, so, uh, and, you know, Darrow goes on and on, and we could read excerpts of this um, of this closing statement for the entire podcast. Uh, again, it's a 12-hour speech. Um, he ends with the So I Be Written in the Book of Love quote from Omar Khayyam um, by saying that if they were poor, he would be working just as hard on their behalf. <laughs> um, and... <laughs> So it's this kind of enormous masterstroke of uh, oratory and publicity. And so a month later, the judge announces that he's ready to issue his sentence. And he dismisses the guilty plea as a mitigating factor. And he dismisses all the psychiatric evidence as a mitigating factor. But he agrees with uh, Darrow's main kind of moral argument throughout the thrust of uh, the trial, which was that it's immoral to kill uh, via the death penalty, people under the age of 21. And so Darrow has won his case, if not necessarily Leopold and Loeb's case, because they're sentenced to life plus 99 years in prison. The prosecutor, uh, Richard Crow, is furious, and he issues this really remarkable public statement where he writes, Leopold and Loeb had the reputation of being immoral degenerates of the worst type. The evidence shows that both defendants are atheists and followers of the Nietzschean doctrines, that they are above the law, both the law of God and the law of man. It is unfortunate for the welfare of the community that they were not sentenced to death. And so the two of them are sent to Joliet prison, and even though uh, people at the prison try to keep them apart, they manage to maintain their relationship. They both end up being transferred to Stateville Penitentiary. Uh, their families send them a lot of money in jail. And because they're visibly richer than the other prisoners, they are targets for threats and robbery. Mm -hmm. And so some of Loeb's allowance was paid off to a prisoner named James Day as a bribe uh, so that Day wouldn't hurt him 
and um, in 1936, Loeb was attacked by Day with a straight razor in the showers and died soon after. And Day claimed that Loeb had assaulted him, and there was sort of a sexual component potentially to Day's claim. Gay panic. Yes, um, but Day was unharmed while Loeb had sustained 50 wounds, including wounds on his arms, hand, and his throat had been slashed not from the front but from behind. Um, the authorities ruled that Day had been defending himself. Oh, God. And you can get a sense of the public attitude towards these men from this lead by Ed Leahy for the Chicago Daily News of the obituary of Loeb. Richard Loeb, despite his erudition, today ended his sentence with a proposition. <laughs> Sorry, you shouldn't laugh. You shouldn't. <laughs> um, but it's amazing because gay panic defense is still used. Absolutely. Um, and the weird thing in this case is it actually seems like Day may have been forcing Loeb to service him sexually huh. and not the other way around. I mean, likely or probable. Yeah. So Leopold, um, after a period of great disturbance where he actually has to be hospitalized while in prison, um, ends up becoming a model prisoner. And in addition to the 15 languages he learned before, he learned 12 more. He established um, middle and high school equivalent school systems in the penitentiary. He reorganized the library. He became a teacher. He volunteered in the hospital. Um, he publishes an autobiography called Life Plus 99 Years in 1958, and in that book he starts with the aftermath of the crime. Um, and so he doesn't say anything about his upbringing, he doesn't say anything about the crime himself, he writes only about this process of kind of rehabilitation. Um, there's a book that gets written in 1956 by Meyer Levin, who had been a classmate of Leopold and Loeb, called Compulsion. Um, and... Leopold was opposed to that book project, and when it was made into a film in 1959, he sued to prevent it from being made. Um, he would later write that reading the book made him physically sick. He said, I felt as I suppose a man would feel if he were exposed stark naked under a strong spotlight before a large audience. In 1958, Leopold is released from prison after 33 years. He's paroled. And he tries to set up a foundation funded by his family money and by the sales of his memoir to aid delinquent youths. And the state of Illinois declares that doing that would violate his parole. So he moves to Puerto Rico to uh, escape the media. Mm -hmm. He ends up marrying a florist, a woman, and becoming a medical technician at a Catholic hospital in Puerto Rico. And he worked as a laboratory assistant, an x-ray assistant. He ends up getting a master's degree at the University of Puerto Rico, becoming a teacher at the University of Puerto Rico, becoming a researcher uh, in social services for the Puerto Rico Department of Health, uh, where he's doing research on leprosy. Um, and at this point, he also picks up his uh, bird watching and publishes the checklist of birds of Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands in 1963. And in 1971, uh, Leopold dies of a heart attack. And I mentioned already that the sensation led there to be this Meyer Levin novel and a film adaptation. Um, a lot of viewers might also be familiar with Alfred Hitchcock's 1948 film Rope, which is a fictionalized account of the crime um, in which a third character is added um, played by Jimmy Stewart, who's the college professor who had introduced the two young men to Nietzsche mm -hmm. and to this idea of the Superman. 
the whole thing is set in New York. The details of the killing are changed somewhat, but the film really plays up the gay subtext. So um, Farley Granger, who plays uh, one of the two men, was gay, and this was an open secret in Hollywood. Um, it's strongly implied that the two men in the film are in a relationship with one another. They live together in the same apartment, and you know no other partners for them are mentioned. Mm-hmm. And the gay subtext goes to the point that one of them is depicted as being a very talented pianist, and at one point sits down at the piano to play this little piece of music, and the music is one of Poulenc's uh, Mouvement Perpetuel, and Poulenc was um, a gay composer. So it, they really yeah. played all that up in the film. He's musical, as the old euphemism used to go. Exactly. And that's the story of Leopold and Loeb. Now comes the part of the show where we awkwardly ask people for money. We don't have any sponsors and we're not beholden to any big media company. We made this because we think these are important stories to tell and we want to be able to keep sharing them with you. And so, in proper idealistic millennial style, we've got a Patreon for you to check out. And Patreon is a way for people to support creators, good gays like us, to keep making the things that they make. So our Patreon is at www.patreon.com slash badgayspod. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash badgayspod. And we've got a lot of great rewards for you. If you give five bucks or more a month, we'll send you a recommended reading list every month with the latest publications from me and Hugh and some other articles on queer political topics that we think are essential reading. Including stuff from the dark corners of the internet that might not be so easy to find. Higher tiers include physical gifts like zines and novels. Whatever you give is really appreciated, and we thank you so much for your support. That's patreon.com slash badgayspod. And saying nice things is always free, so if you're enjoying the show, you can rate us five stars and write a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us find new audiences. Thanks. Wow. Uh, fascinating and horrible. Yeah. Two terrible narcissists. Two really terrible narcissists. And... Uh... Yet people who kind of intersect with all of these ideas about sexuality and class that I think uh, are interesting to think through in the American context, just as we thought through them in the English one last mm-hmm. week. And it's funny, initially I was worried actually about doing uh, Leopold and Lowe right after Ronnie Cray. It's like, is this too much murderer, you know, all up at once? But I actually think to put these two stories in conversation with one another is really interesting because you see... Um, I think a lot of really similar dynamics at play. Yeah, yeah. One thing I guess I thought in, was interesting in that was this discussion of born this way as homosexuality as pathology. Mm-hmm. Is there historically um, a link between um, that being used within a pathological criminalizing way, which is these people are sick perverts? How does that then transfer into the way it's used today, which is... Um, you can't criticize this as, for example, a lifestyle or a choice because I'm born this way. Because it seems sometimes that that's taken as a as a truism or as a an article of faith. Um, but going back to even a, as early as the sort of nineteen later, sorry, as late as the nineteen eighties, there are lots of like lots and lots of discussions within gay society about causes and uh, influences and, and, you know, where where homosexuality comes from. Whereas now, Born That Way has, yeah, has become almost an article of faith. When did that change happen? Well, it's interesting. The Born This Way pathologization 
um, and medicalization comes out of two independent but related discourses that have really different aims when it comes to their kind of political um, attitude toward homosexuality, but related epistemological um, roots. And one of them would be this kind of, well, they're sick, twisted perverts and they can't help it argument. And the other would be um, the work of people like Magnus Hirschfeld, and then later in the U.S., um, Kinsey and Harry Benjamin, who are looking for scientific explanations for this phenomena and kind of dig up the idea that there's some inborn attitude. And at least for Hirschfeld, the idea is, well, if it's inborn, uh, then it's something that can't be criticized. Or if it's inborn, it's something that we have to come to accept as a society. Because, mm -hmm. you know, it's inborn and it's between consenting adults and it doesn't hurt anybody. And that line of argument um, ends up getting followed. But both of those lines of argument come out of this enthusiasm for science and this kind of scientism of the first part of the 20th century where um, large numbers of social phenomena under this kind of rubric of the progressive movement become the subject of um, scientific research and scientific debate and unfortunately, a lot of the science of the time ends up being pseudoscience. I mean, mm -hmm. this is the science of the reform of social conditions in slums, but this is also the science of race, and this is the science of eugenics. And it's really wrapped up in colonial attitudes and colonial administration, um, settler colonial in the U.S., imperial colonial in Europe, and will go on to uh, profoundly influence the Nazi race laws. Mm -hmm. I think that's interesting as well because today, I mean, I do think there is va value in Born This Way as a rhetorical tool for a lot of people um, and as a way of people, uh, especially when you're young, coming to understand your sexuality in a hostile environment. But it's it's interesting today that Born This Way as, as that rhetorical tool or ideological way of seeing your sexuality seems to emerge very strongly in response to another form of pseudoscience and pseudopsychiatry, which is gay cure therapy. Absolutely. And in that sense, I think it's done good work. Uh, absolutely, yeah. Um, I think what's interesting in this case, though, is to think about how the fact that all of these things are kind of emerging together and alongside one another points to the fact that our current understanding of how arguments for and against homosexuality, certain kinds of arguments for and against homosexuality are structured and fit in with other kind of discourses were not always so. And so you have this really potent mix of stuff in this case all coming together um, that I think is really interesting and kind of destabilizing to think about. And they're also just such strange, fascinating, compelling people to think about. Yeah. Is there a relation also between the idea of um, within bonus ways of homosexuality as something that's immutable and then also their convictions along uh, or their examination along psychiatric grounds, which is that their uh, their pathology is also immutable. Absolutely. Um, and one of the things that Darrow is trying to do is to establish that um, crimes like this are committed because of psychiatric disturbance and therefore should be uh, treated medically rather than being punished judicially or criminally. 
Well, that's very interesting as well because then that feeds into yeah, the treatment, the, the the carceral treatment of um, of homosexuality, which is also medicalised. So, for example, uh, in the 1950s in the UK, there was quite often for people who were convicted of what were called sex crimes, which was usually just consensual homosexual adult behaviour, being offered the choice between prison and medical treatment, chemical castration usually. It was the same way in the U.S. People were given chemical castration. People were sent to asylums. People were given shock therapy. Yeah. Especially wealthy people who were given the kind of sympathy of being thought sick rather than being thought evil. And again, I think this hangs on that invert-pervert mm. distinction we've been talking about earlier in the show. So Leopold and Loeb, are we going to say bad gays or not bad gays? Well... In their early life, I think they come across as completely unrepentant narcissists and horrible, horrible men. But I have to say, it has been complicated by his later seeming redemption and his efforts to uh, help educate others. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to rate someone who murdered a 14-year-old as anything other than very bad indeed. Um, so I think the ruling is bad gay. Uh, but I do think that there are some interesting mitigating factors later in life and I think they provide a really fascinating lens through which to look at a whole lot of questions around media and class and sexuality in the first half of the 20th century. Yeah, my general rule is the door to redemption should always be kept open. So if people want to learn more um, and to read some of the sources for our show today, there's a book, uh, 2014, called Murder Most Queer by Jordan Schildkraut that looks at the different theatrical and cinematic representations of the case and how they reveal changing attitude towards homosexuality. Mm -hmm. There's Nina Barrett's book, The Leopold and Loeb Files, which has been written up again in the Paris Review and which contains a lot of the trial documents. A lot of the trial documents themselves, some of the confessions, Darrow's closing statement, are available in full online. Um, and then there's Simon Batz's book, uh, For the Thrill of It, Leopold Loeb and the Murder That Shocked Chicago. So thank you so much for listening to our show. Um, if you would like to support us in making more of these, you can uh, go to our Patreon, and we've talked earlier in the show about how that works. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at BadGaysPod. You can follow me at BenWritesThings. And you can follow me at Hugh Lemmy. Thanks so much.